We're going to be uh, looking at an Old Testament passage tonight, Isaiah chapter 40. I originally thought that the stage was actually set up for me, but I was bummed to hear that it was kids' praise. thought it was a nice little background for that. But I'm going to ask if you guys would stand, please. We're going to read Isaiah 40 together, verses 1 through 11. The message tonight, O Zion, bearer of good news. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is like grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. You can be seated. Church, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this evening and this opportunity to study your word, Lord, to dive in deeper, to hear what you have to say to your people, Lord. And we wait expectantly as we look at this Old Testament passage uh, speaking of good news in this series, good news of great joy, as we lead up to the celebration of the birth of your Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, would you be with us tonight, Lord? Uh, would you be with all of the people here? Would you open their ears and their hearts? Let your word accomplish its work for your glory, Lord. Let it sink in deep. And Father, may you anoint my words. Let the words that come out of my mouth be yours and not mine, Lord. And as I'm Somewhat recovering from a cold, Lord, strengthen my voice and help me to make it through this message as I know you will, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Slight warning in the prayer in case I clear my throat a couple times, you guys know. I woke up feeling not so great this morning, but uh, as the Lord miraculously heals, here I am and actually doing a lot better than I may sound. So as we look at Isaiah, uh, a little history first as we're you know, starting midway through this book in chapter 40 and kind of starting this series. Uh, Isaiah was alive and, and ministered to Jerusalem, specifically Judah. He was a prophet um, in the uh, 7th and 8th centuries. Uh, he was there during the reign of, of four different kings, actually. And this book is really interesting. It's almost like a miniature Bible in a sense. There are 66 chapters in this book. Some of you may be familiar with this. And it's divided into a few sections, but interestingly enough, the first major section is chapters 1 to 39, and the second major section is chapters 40 through 66. So 39 uh, books and then 27 books, and most of you are familiar that that's exactly how the Bible is uh, kind of split up. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And we know that the Old Testament... 
of the Bible as a whole is, is primarily focused on, on law and, and history and, and all sorts of other things. And then the New Testament shifts to the time of Jesus, and it shifts more to a, a focus of grace, redemption, and salvation. And just like that, the book of Isaiah actually follows a similar course. The, the book is also the most prophetic book that we have in all of the Bible. There's actually um, at least 66 times that the book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. Uh, it's quoted 20, in, in 20 of the New Testament books. It is quoted directly. And as we look at the division, chapters 1 and 35 are all about God's uh, impending judgment. Isaiah prophesies judgment um, on his people, mainly for their, their disobedience. Chapters 36 and 39, kind of a shorter interlude, and it talks a little bit about captivity, but it's twofold. It talks about Assyrian captivity, and then later, at the very end of chapter 39, the Babylonian captivity. And here is where we begin this big divide. So as chapter 40 begins, Isaiah is uh, really speaking into the future, almost in a sense uh, how John uh, in the book of Revelation uh, has a, a vision or a dream, if you will, and he's, he's looking ahead into the future. One commentator put it this way, it's as if Isaiah fell asleep at the end of chapter 39, and as if in a prophetic dream, Isaiah was lifted into God's heavenly court to hear Judah's predicament being discussed. But now in chapter 40, Isaiah wakes up to what is him, a new historical situation. He reveals to the Jews what he heard in the heavenly throne room. And so the latter half of this book, starting here, 40 to 66, these, uh, all of these chapters are, are mainly prophetic in nature about the future Babylonian captivity, the exile that would happen, that the Jewish people would be carried away, spend 70 years uh, in exile, and then that they would ultimately return to the Lord. And it's filled with, with great themes of redemption uh, and specifically comfort as well as we're going to look in here tonight. And so Isaiah 40 to 48 speak of the comfort, the deliverance of God. 49 through 57 then speak of uh, the salvation of God in the form of the suffering servant. And I know many of you are, are familiar with Isaiah 53, the famous chapter that is prophetic of Jesus' life and death. And then chapters 56, 58 excuse me, to 66 reveal the glory of God. And 65 and 66, the last two chapters, talk about a second coming. They talk about a new heaven and a new earth much the same way that the New Testament ends in the book of Revelation. And so Isaiah 40 starts with one of the, the famous quotes here saying, a voice is calling, make way for the Lord in the wilderness. And just as the New Testament starts in that same way with the appearance of John the Baptist and then ends in Revelation with a second coming and a new heaven and a new earth, Isaiah is structured in the same way. So why do I tell you all this? I don't really know. I thought it was pretty fascinating, actually. But no, I, I think that we need a little bit of a history here. I know normally when we start a new book, we get a great introduction onto what's going on as we dive into a new book here of, of Isaiah. I thought it was worth noting just a little bit of the history and where we're at and what Isaiah is speaking of. So in verse one, it starts out, comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. The word comfort is the Hebrew word naham. It means to comfort, to console, to be sorry, to have compassion, Literally, it could be translated uh, as a loud sigh or a heavy breath or as an exhale. We think of like, <sighs> we can maybe think of someone sharing bad news with us and uh, we, we feel a, a sense of, of sorrow for them and, and maybe in, in comfort, that's all we can let out as a sigh, you know, just, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. In a similar way, this is, this is what God is saying to his people. He tells Isaiah the prophet, who's, who's the mouthpiece of God here, 
He says, I want you to comfort my people. Why is that? Well, again, as we talked about, this is the first section that's specifically addressing the Israelites in Babylonian captivity. We know that they had experienced a lot throughout their time as a nation. We've gone through Exodus, so we've learned about the slavery in, in Egypt. We've learned about their exodus out of the country, the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. They enter into the promised land, but then they, they still face enemies and, and battles and so many things. And then there's Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity and on and on and on. But here in the Babylonian captivity is, is where, uh, where this takes place. In Isaiah 39, verse 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. That's just a few verses before where we pick up. Again, 39, verse 6. That's this, this uh, impending prophecy that Isaiah is giving, that one day they're going to be carried off into Babylon. And now we've fast-forwarded 150 years and so the people are in the midst of this captivity and, and no doubt that they are uh, despondent. They are um, just not sure what's going on, maybe even crying out, where is my God? Why has this happened? Why are we in this place? But God speaks to them, comfort. Those are the first words out of his mouth, the first words addressing these people, comfort, oh comfort, my people. He reminds them of his love for them. He wants to bring them this comfort. And really, this is one of the main themes of the rest of this book. Many, many times, God speaks some of these same words. Isaiah 51.3 says, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. Isaiah 52.9, Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he has redeemed Jerusalem. Isaiah 66.13, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Isaiah clearly knew what it was like to warn the people, to talk about their disobedience, to, to give them judgment. That's what had happened in the previous chapters. But here, God specifically wants to instruct him to comfort. We know that even the Holy Spirit is then later called the comforter. In John 14, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper or comforter that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Now, this, of course, was centuries later when Jesus spoke this, speaking of uh, the Holy Spirit. But it's the same God, and it's the same spirit that was at work then, through the mouth of Jesus, that's here speaking through the mouth of Isaiah. And speak kindly, it says, to Jerusalem. Speak kindly. God's not talking to the city when he says Jerusalem, but rather to the people. He's, he's talking to the Israelites that would... Um, eventually come back into Jerusalem. They weren't there yet. They were in the captivity, but they were eventually going to go back to their homeland. He says, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The word translated kindly uh, may read for some of your versions to speak tenderly. Um, some of your versions may even say to speak to the heart. And that's a great translation. The Hebrew word is, is lev or leb and refers to, to the physical heart. In this day, in this time, it was more understood that, that the heart was uh, of much more value. We commonly think of it as, as emotional and this love-based um, kind of an organ. But for them, it was, it was the seed of all of the thoughts, the emotions, the will. It was the, the deepest, innermost part of, of man. And so if we could paraphrase, God is saying, comfort them and speak to their heart, speak to the, the core of their very being. He wants to give this comfort. 
I keep reiterating that, but I think it's so important that these are the first words out of his mouth. We know that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That is who he is. And it says, and call out to her. And as we we look ahead into the the future after the captivity, we're gonna begin to see a little bit of uh, some dual fulfillment or partial fulfillment, things that we be fulfilled uh, after the exile, but then there's some things that aren't gonna be fulfilled until Christ comes again. So let's look at three different things that it says here. It says, one, tell her that her warfare has ended. Specifically, the exile is over. The war with the Babylonians will be over. The rule will be at an end. The people return to Israel and Jerusalem. That's the partial fulfillment. And I say it's partial because the Israelites would still be, in fact, faced with war. We know that the war didn't cease when they came back from captivity. And our Christian life today, brother and sister, is marked with warfare, is it not? It is a spiritual kind. Might not be a physical warfare, but a spiritual warfare that we face, that we battle. So it's not completely over. We know that there will still be final battles to come. We all know the battle of Armageddon. We know that ultimately Satan will be be defeated in a final battle. But one day after Christ returns, this is the, the future fulfillment when Christ comes again, one day there will be no more warfare. That will last for eternity. The second thing we see is that her iniquity has been removed or her sins have been forgiven. God is looking past what they've done how they've disobeyed, how they haven't trusted, how they haven't listened to what he said, and he's coming to rescue and to restore them. The people clearly knew their sins. Again, Isaiah had, had given them that, that warning in 39 chapters. I'm pretty sure they, they knew all the things that they had done wrong, right? 39 chapters of this. But in a partial fulfillment, this is speaking of God giving, forgiving the particular sins of these people at this particular time. He would redeem them. He would restore them. And in a future sense, we can think that our sins will be forgiven. They have in a sense, but haven't been realized fully. When Christ returns, you and I will face the throne of judgment. But ultimately, our sins will be covered and our sins will be forgiven. Our iniquity is removed. The Hebrew word for removed is the word ratzah. And it refers to an Old Testament sacrifice that was uh, accepted It was considered accepted by God. And then it would then cover. It would then be covered as if the sin of the people were removed. So when they they brought a sacrifice and the sacrifice was accepted and it was pleasing to the Lord, their, their sin was covered as if it was removed. That's the word here. Their sins are not just removed, but their sins are covered. Foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ. Foreshadowing the perfect spotless lamb that would take away the sins of the world. The third thing we see is that she has received double of the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Now, this could be a variety of different things. Commentators disagree on some of what this is. Some could say, well, it was a double captivity. They had a Syrian captivity, and then later they had a Babylonian captivity, and and that was the the double for her sins. But it can also be uh, considered in light of a certificate of a debt, or sometimes even of a mortgage, what would happen is if you had a debt that you owed or maybe a mortgage on your home, it said that they would, they would take that sheet of paper and they would nail it to your doorpost, and it would stand there as a record. And what would happen is when that debt was finally paid off completely, they would come and they would fold it over or double it up, and they would put a nail through, And that would show that that debt had been canceled and that it was forgiven, that it was no longer paid. So 
Whether or not that's it or not, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. She received double of the Lord's hand, double for her sins. The Lord has paid that debt. The Lord has folded it, doubled it over and paid that certificate. Jesus said similar words in John 19, 30, as he was on, on the cross and he cries out, it is finished. You're familiar with the Greek word tetelestai, paid in full. Similar imagery there. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, and when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus Christ has nailed that certificate and paid our sins. What a great message that God is sending to his people. He says, your, your captivity is over. He says, your sins have been removed. Excuse me, your iniquity has been removed and your sins have been forgiven. And thankfully, that's the same message that God sends to us. He sends to me and he sends to you, brother and sister. And so we transition now into another section uh, in verse three with words that are probably familiar to most of you, but most likely from the gospels and maybe not uh, from this Isaiah section. But Isaiah 40 verse three says, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Beautiful prophecy here of the coming of, of John the Baptist. Pastor Michael taught a little bit uh, on Sunday leading up into this, uh, yeah, out of Luke 1, actually. But in Luke 3, it says this, and he came into the, all the district around the Jordan, speaking of John the Baptist, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet that we just read, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So back in Isaiah, those words, let every valley be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and let the rugged terrain be a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Now, it says to clear the way, to make smooth, to lift up the valleys, to lower the mountains, to straighten the, the crooked paths, likely referring to preparation that would be done before a king came. In ancient days, they would be traveling maybe in a chariot or some sort of a convoy, and they would send people before them to make sure that the road was, that was literally smooth and passable for them to be able to get through. Now, we know that our Lord has no need for that. We know that he has all the power in the world to move mountains and lower mountains and fill up valleys and make crooked paths straight. So what is this talking about here? I think a couple things. One, it says that nothing is gonna stand in the way of God coming to redeem his people. And what a beautiful picture that is and a beautiful reminder for us that nothing will stand in his way. Nothing will thwart his will from happening. He will come. Isaiah 62, 10 says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, Build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the people. Likewise, in this previous verse in Isaiah, there's this preparation to be done. And the call, of course, isn't the physical preparation as we talked about, but I think opening up the hearts of those for whom he is coming. Isaiah 57, verse 14 says, and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road. But listen to this, remove the obstacles out of the way of the people. So the Isaiah 40 seems to be talking about removing the obstacles out of the way of God, but 
We know that he doesn't need us to do that. But really, the obstacles are in the way of the people. And you'll remember from Sunday, as Pastor Michael shared on Luke 1, quoting from that, he says, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Again, speaking of John the Baptist. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him and the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Remember, John the Baptist's work was that of a forerunner, uh, a messenger, if you will, a preparer. And I think sometimes we forget how important the work of preparation is. You know, the Bible is, is filled with stories of preparation. A lot of the stories are really involved with long periods of waiting. Have you noticed that? It's easy to read about. We don't necessarily like it when it happens in our own life, when we're praying for something and waiting and expectant, hopeful for something to happen. But the preparation is vitally important. And John is willing to be used as a preparation tool. Nothing more and nothing less. Remember, he famously said that he must increase and I must decrease. I'm not fit to untie the, the thong of his sandal. He wasn't looking for fame or status as a prophet or any sort of great messenger, but he was just willing to come and fulfill that role of the messenger. Verse five says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. Question, what does the glory of the Lord look like? We've been studying in Exodus. We know that it sometimes looks like a pillar of cloud, sometimes look like an all-consuming fire. Ezekiel talked about the glory of the Lord when he was called to be a prophet in the first chapter. A great storm and creatures that came down on something that looked like chariots. That was the glory of the Lord. And then Hebrews 1.3 tells us, and he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, speaking of God, and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. And John 1.14, famous verses to us all, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And the glory was to be veiled to all flesh, it says, not just a select few. This was to all people, to the ends of the earth. The whole earth is filled with his glory, Amen. Verse five ends, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is an important piece. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God. You can, you can take it to the bank. There's others in the culture that might share all sorts of uh, great uh, sounding things to tickle your ears and make you feel better about yourself. Culture is filled with great mantras about, you know, what to do when you're going through a difficult time. But they don't speak the same words of comfort that the Lord does. Jeremiah 23 actually warns against this, against listening to these other types of things, specifically regarding false prophets. But it's interesting when you hear these words and then relate it to what we hear today from actors and celebrities and musicians and you know, spiritual people uh, of the like that would try to tell us great things. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility they speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. 
But in contrast to those words are the words of God himself in Isaiah 40. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken, and he says, I will come for you. I will redeem you. I will restore you. The Lord is coming. Behold, your God is coming. Verse 6 says, a voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is like grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God has a clear and simple message for us through this metaphor. It's a little bit veiled at first, but as we break it down, we will see that really it is the frailty of man, the frailty of man. The New American Standard, as I just read, renders the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. But those of you with uh, King James or New King James, NIV, and I think NLT, will read as follows. The grass withers, the flower fades because the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are like grass. Do you notice the difference between when the Lord blows on it and because the Lord blows on it? These verses are famous to us, right? And we, we hear them in several different places in, in the Bible. And we commonly think that it just refers to the brevity of human life. You know, here today, gone tomorrow. The grass sprouts up and off it goes. Very true. But sometimes we forget that we're the grass. We're just like that. James says we're, we're like but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. We are like grass because the Lord blows upon it. That's when the grass withers. That's when the flower fades. If you have a Bible uh, with a concordance, you might see that Psalm 90 is listed. We're going to flip back there and take a look. A couple books back to your left, Psalm 90. Some similar wording as we start out, and then it'll take a turn. Psalm 90, verse 5. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes, and sprouts anew, but toward the evening it fades and it withers away. Similar wording to what we just read, but as we continue, look what else this says. This is a, a psalm of Moses, by the way. Verse 7 says, We have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we will fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. All God's people said, oh, Thought this was a nice, lighthearted message of comforting the people of God, right? Not so much here, but again, this is our same God that is referring to this. Remember that death was not a part of origin, God's original plan back in the, the garden in Genesis 3. Eve ate of the tree from the middle of the garden. And God said what? Do not eat of it or you will surely die. And that's what happened. And here we are, you and I, centuries later and Pastor Michael jokes all the time, the stats on death are staggering, aren't they? One out of every one person will die. 
But I don't know that that's something that we think about on a regular basis. I don't know that we think that our times are in his hands. Our lives are not our own. Psalm 30, excuse me, Psalm 31, 14 to 15. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Job 12, verse 10, the life of every living thing is in his hand, as well as the breath of all mankind. And Psalm 103, for he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind passes over it, it is no more. And a place, excuse me, and its place acknowledge it no longer. Interestingly enough, that, that word there in verse 16 where it says the wind has passed over it. And then back in um, verse 7, it says when the breath of the Lord. The Hebrew word is ruach. You may have heard it before. It's the word translated as wind sometimes, but it's also translated as spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, we wither, we fade when the spirit blows upon us. The Lord can do whatever he wants with us at any given time. So again, Isaiah is uh, giving this message here, talking about man's frailty. So you say, well, why all this bad news? Again, I, I thought this was a message of comfort. Well, there's good news coming, but the good news isn't always as good of good news unless we know the bad news, unless we know that we are but dust, unless we know that one day we will perish, unless we know that we will face an eternity of punishment without the redemption of the Lord. And so verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In contrast to our frail temporal lives, the word of our God stands forever. H.L. Hastings, a pastor from the mid-1800s, says this regarding the word of God. Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels with all their assaults make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When a French monarch proposed a persecution of Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of the infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die but the book still lives. We are like those emperors. We are like those kings, priests, rulers, popes. We will die, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and it gives credibility here. In 1 Peter 1, Peter picks up this quote out of Isaiah in the New Testament, and he references it to being born again. 1 Peter 1, to 25, since you have obedience, excuse me, since you have an obedience to the truth, Purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but which is imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. 
All flesh is like grass. Here's the quote. And it's glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So this same living and enduring word that Isaiah preached about, it's the same word that was preached to you. And once you believed it, what did it result in? Redemption and salvation. That's the same enduring living word of God. A better translation actually of that first Peter instead of preached is actually the, the literal word good news. In Greek, euangelizo, a Greek word for good and message or, or good news. That's what was given to them. The gospel, the good news was preached. And the good news of the gospel is simply this. Brother and sister, if you've never heard it before, I know in this room most of you have. But the message is simply this, that because of God's great love for you, well, let me back up. You were once dead in your sin and your trespasses. That's the first part. But because of God's great love for you, and because of the, the perfect sacrificial atoning death of his son, of the lamb of God, you have eternal life. You have redemption. That is something great to celebrate. In Colossians 2, uh, I referenced earlier talking about having uh, Jesus having canceled out the certificate of debt and nailing it to the cross. Uh, the previous verse 13 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven you of all your transgressions. Again, having nailed that certificate of debt to the cross. And so now that we are clear on what the bad news is and what the good news is, we'll move on to verse nine. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Now, the wording here, again, will be different based on some of your translations, like one of the other versions that I, uh, verses that I mentioned earlier. Those with the NASB will read just as I did. But others with the NIV will read as this. You who bring good news to Zion, or you who bring good news to Jerusalem. Now, again, with this verse, there is debate among scholars as to how this is actually supposed to be read, whether the the bringer of good news is Jerusalem and is Zion, or whether the news will be brought to Jerusalem and brought to Zion. We don't have time to break this down and debate and have all kinds of uh, talks about the different verb tenses and whether it's masculine or feminine. I'll leave that up to you guys for further study. If you're nerds like I am, you can try to figure out what this means and what exactly is going on. But I will tell you that in my personal belief, I, I think that the NASB has it rendered best that Zion and Jerusalem will be the bearers of good news. No doubt the message was still carried to them, that there was still a message that would be carried to Zion, to Jerusalem, representative of the people of God. The good news was coming. That message was clearly delivered to them. But here's why I think it's like that. If it reads how we think it reads, O Zion, bearer of good news. O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. It's actually a missional verse. It's giving them a command to carry out the message. And we have a missional God, amen? So we have a missional God, and I believe that this is what he's saying here. Verse doesn't say that God is gonna be the one bringing the good news. God is the good news. His son is the good news. That is the, the news. He himself, and he speaks to the people here, and he addresses them, O Zion, 
bearer of good news, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Again, not talking to the physical mountain or to the physical city, but representative of the people, of God's people. They were to be the messengers of the good news. They were to bear it. Now, Isaiah was the first messenger to share this. He shared it with the people originally. But then the one to pass God's word along to his people, or excuse me, were his people. He says, get yourself up on a high mountain. Station yourself in a high place where you can be heard. This is such great news. It needs to be shouted from the mountaintops. And I wish my voice was better so I could shout a little bit longer tonight. <laughs> but the Lord hasn't fully healed me yet. But shout it from the mountaintops. This is great news. Don't, don't sit there quietly. Don't, don't go and talk about it to someone when you feel like it or when you have time or yeah, when I get around to it, I might share some of the good news. No, this is important. Get up to the top of the mountain. Shout it. Lift up your voice mightily. Amen. Lift it up and do not fear, he says. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God, or behold your God in some translations. Spread the good news. This is good tidings of, of great joy. Spread the good news. God's purpose isn't that you and I simply hear this good news and that we enjoy the comfort of the gospel. Certainly, there is an aspect of comfort that God wants to give us, but that's not the end all. But God wants us to increase our enjoyment as we spread it to others. That's the call that you and I have, brother and sister. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, the Lord is uh, called the God of all comfort. And he gives us comfort in all of our afflictions. Do you know the rest of the verse? So that we can comfort those with the same comfort which with we ourselves have been comforted with by God. That's, again, why I think this is a missional verse. We're not supposed to just receive this comfort for ourselves and hold on to it and hide it. We're supposed to share it. We're supposed to announce it. We are supposed to be messengers, brothers and sisters. What a great task to be a herald, a messenger. Isaiah, again, the first to share this message, John the Baptist would then later uh, fulfill that message and, and, and quote it. But here God's asking all of his people to take on that task. And by extension, I believe he's asking me and he is asking you to take on that task. We know that this verse wasn't specifically written to us, but Jesus later gives some similar wording in Acts 1.8 when he says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my... Wow, you guys are quiet out there. Your voices are worse than mine tonight. You will be my witnesses to Judea and to Samaria, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. And we have a a great commission that we've been given in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so in a sense, I, I tried to read this as, how would God maybe say this to us in a modern day language? I think he would say, in a sense, Corona, bearer of good news, say to the cities of Riverside County, here is your God. Are you saying that? Are you telling people, here is your God. Behold, your God. It's a simple proclamation, is it not? The Great Commission we know is a little bit longer. In Acts 1-8, you will be my witnesses. But behold your God. That's the, the singular um, phrase that's given. And it's a simple, simple proclamation. But yet again, what a difficult one at times, is it not? For us to share that news. I won't stand up here and pretend that it's just so easy to stand on the mountaintops all the time and shout it and have no fear. It's a little difficult. Amen, Lori, from 
the evangelism team. They were just out last week uh, at the, the Mission Inn and evangelizing. I think three people gave their lives to the Lord. They were just sharing with us in a prayer meeting before the service here. They were out, yeah, amen. They were out proclaiming the good news, but I thought of you guys, and I thought, imagine if all you had to do was go out there and say, behold your God, behold your God. People would just come. It's not that easy, unfortunately. We know that. But messengers are needed, are they not? I would say that all of us sitting here today are believers, why? Well, because at one point, someone came and shared the message with us. It might have been a pastor or preacher or someone that you, you know, heard in a church or on a radio, but it could have been a friend or a relative or a neighbor or someone you met on the street or Lori, the crazy lady standing out at the Mission Inn trying to evangelize to you. We need messengers. Romans 10, 14 says, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That first there is a message we'll actually get to hear next week from Patrick, specifically Isaiah 52. And so you may not have the title of a preacher. You may not have a, a ministry or pulpit or some great thing, but you're called to be a witness. You're called to be an ambassador of Christ. You're called to be a messenger of the good news. And I will ask, as I ask myself this week, Am I doing that? Are you doing that on a regular basis? Can it be said of me, oh, Alex, bearer of good news? Can it be said of you, oh, fill in your name? Are you bearing the good news? Verse 10 says, behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. As we wind down, we'll quickly go through these things. Things to note about God's coming first is that he will come, plain and simple, he will come. He has said it, his words are faithful and true. He is coming, and he will come with might and with his arm ruling for him. He is coming with a strong hand to rule and reign on this earth forever. That is who our God is. And it says his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He is coming to reward his people and to recompense. He is coming to reward the faithful and judge the unfaithful. It's kind of a, a dual fold when he comes back. Some similar wording in Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. But let's look at what else we can note about God's coming. Verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs, and he will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He will come like a shepherd, it's a big difference between coming um, with, with this strength and might and coming like a shepherd. Is there not? Shepherds were known to be maybe a little more meek and maybe a little even uh, seen as lower class in that kind of a society. And that day, I was thinking of David and Goliath and, and the two coming up together, strong and mighty, and a meek young shepherd boy. Not exactly what you would normally picture for your great king and Messiah and ruler. And the Jewish people, we know, were, were constantly looking for this great um, political figure or, or this great warrior ruler that would come and, and overthrow, uh, maybe at this time, the, the, the Roman government, what was going on in, in Jesus' time. And Jesus didn't fit that bill. He came meek and humble, born as a, a baby in a manger in this beautiful scene of Bethlehem here behind us. 
In 1 Samuel 16, when, uh, when Samuel comes to anoint uh, the future king of Israel and he comes looking for David, he goes to the, the sons of Jesse and he lines up all his you know, biggest, strongest, tallest, strapping young sons and he said, nope, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him. Is, isn't there another one? Well, yeah, we got the little runt out in the field, paraphrasing there. He said, yeah, go, go, go get him. That's who God would anoint as king. And that's how Jesus came, meek and humble. Secondly, he will come and he will tend his flock, or literally we could, we could read this as he will feed his flock. That's, that's how it reads. And feeding a flock is a big essential part to being a shepherd. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, sheep must be directed to good pasture and they must be moved on to new pasture when they have stripped the grass bare. They're not even smart enough to leave the plot of grass that they're on to go find another one. They'll just stay and gnaw at the ground. He continues, we need as much carefully directed feeding as sheep. No creature has less power to take care of itself than the sheep. Even the tiny ant with its foresight can provide for the evil day. But this poor creature, I love that, this poor creature <laughs> must be tended by man or else perish. Brother and sister, you and I are that poor creature. You and I are called sheep in the Bible. I know you're aware. We are needing the care of a shepherd. But our God knows our needs. He intimately cares for us. He provides for every need. Here it says that he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. Lambs, speaking of, of the young, most tender ones, carry them in his bosom, kind of in the chest area, between the arms, close to the heart, showing his comfort, showing his care and concern for his people that are lost and broken. Again, these under uh, captivity in Babylon. He's promising he will come to rescue and to recompense. Many of the greatest men in the Bible were shepherds, and their character as shepherds points to Jesus Christ. We see Abel as a picture of Jesus, the sacrificed shepherd. Jacob, the picture of Jesus, the working shepherd. Joseph is a picture of Jesus, the persecuted and exalted shepherd. Moses, a picture of Jesus, the calling out from Egypt shepherd. And David is a picture of Jesus, the shepherd king. And we know famously in John 10 that Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Brothers and sisters, he has laid down his life for us. That is the good news that has come to us this Advent season and every Advent season and really comes to us every day. Today is the day of salvation for any of us that would hear that. Jesus is not only the good shepherd, but the lamb of God that was slain, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the lamb of God that takes away my sins and he takes away your sins. In closing, Psalm 23 is a beautiful song of David about the comfort and care received as a sheep of the flock of God. And I just wanted to share it. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
All of those promises are yours and they are mine if the Lord truly is your shepherd. And I hope that he is your shepherd. I hope that you have made that decision to put your, your faith and your trust in him and that you would follow him and that you would get to enjoy the comfort, the love, and the blessings that are due the sheep of his flock. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your beautiful and comforting words, Lord. Uh, they are timeless. They speak not just to a people in Babylonian captivity, but to people in a hurting world today. Lord, this last year and a half has been difficult, um, and it still is, Lord. There are all sorts of things happening in this crazy world, but you speak words of comfort. You bring good news. You have brought good news to Jerusalem, to your people, God. Good news of great joy, you have sent your son, the good shepherd, also as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Thank you, Lord, for that sacrificial death of your son, that we may have life and that we may have life abundantly, Father. And I pray that if anyone does not have that salvation, maybe has never heard that good news before, that simple good news that you were once dead in your sins and trespasses, but because of that sacrificial death of your son, that you have made us alive and new in you, Lord. If anyone hasn't trusted in you, I pray they would, that they would cry out, that they would pray to you, Lord. They would put their faith in you. This season, now more than ever, Lord, we know that you already came into this earth. This Advent season, is, as you know, we look to the, the coming of Christ, you came. You came and you died and you rose again. You defeated sin and death. And we have life because of it, Lord. But we know that you're coming again. So all of us that are born again, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to the call that you have given us here, Lord. May we be faithful saints carrying out your will and your purposes for your glory, Lord. And may we eagerly await your second coming on this earth, Lord. In Jesus' name.